right. Apparently we asked the good question or everyone ignored the question and had found their own. Good morning, and uh, once again, welcome to Hope Community Church. Uh, it's really good to be here again, uh, for our family at least. The last few weeks have been a little bit crazy with uh, both Christmas and New Year's falling on the weekend. Uh, we, uh, we've been running around, so it's great to be here. Uh, for those that don't know me, my name is Aaron Robertson, and I'm uh, one of the elders here at Hope Community Church here in Columbia Heights. Uh, my wife, Erica, back there, and our four kids, we've been at Hope for uh, 13, 12, 13, I think 13 years now. Uh, so it, it's been a minute. Um, so uh, to start, I've got my slides out of order, but uh, question of the day, uh, what's something that you throw yourself wholeheartedly into? Uh, I, I've got a number of things as I was thinking about this. I've, I've got a good meal. Uh, I can attack food with uh, ferocity. Uh, I like kind of collecting hobbies. Uh, so my hobby is like collecting hobbies, trying new things and figuring out. So when I like get onto something, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. Uh, but I had an experience this week uh, that reminded me something that it it's only happens every couple of years, but every time it does, I commit to it. Uh, and it, it's kind of been a, uh, a joy through the years to, uh, to do this. And so uh, every couple of years, those of you that are old enough have to renew your driver's license. Uh, and I've really committed to taking good driver's license pictures through the years. Uh, and, uh, there's, it's a fine line to walk because the DMV only has so much tolerance for uh, exuberant photo takers. But through the years, uh, I've managed to take these gems. Uh, and uh, I've been once or twice asked to retake my picture because I was too committed. Uh, but this year, I pulled off a beauty on Tuesday. Uh, I'm winning 2023 already because of this. <laughs> and uh, I, I really love, uh, they're gonna be bad anyways, right? Why not commit to it? Uh, and so that's something I've, I've kind of done. I actually have had thoughts. I'd, I'd like, when I die, I'd like my driver's licenses displayed. Uh, just because amidst all the, I'm sure, endless tears that will be happening. I, I want this side of me to be remembered as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, that's, that's what I commit to. There's other things probably more meaningful than that, but this week I was reminded of that. Uh, so we're in a sermon series backing up on prayer. Uh, and uh, today actually is the last day. Uh, we're finishing up. We've been in it for I think eight or nine weeks now, uh, looking at different prayers uh, throughout the Bible and seeing what they show us about God, what they show us about ourselves, how we can uh, model our own prayer lives off them, what we can learn about uh, intimacy and fellowship with God, a whole lot of different things that have come out in this series. Uh, and so today, to close out a series on prayer, we are going to look at a passage that doesn't even have a prayer. Uh, I didn't pick it. 
Uh, it has two mentions of prayer. It mentions people praying twice, uh, kind of brief and just kind of in passing almost in the passage. Uh, so with the whole chapter, those two mentions of prayer, that's how we're closing out our series on prayer. Uh, needless to say, uh, I struggled this week with, with it this week. Uh, how do you close out a series on prayer with a passage that uh, just has prayer mentioned in passing? Uh, so I, I struggled. And some of you are thinking uh, that seems like I've struggled every time I've done a sermon. Uh, so if that's the case, uh, buckle up because I actually did uh, really struggle this week. So we're uh, looking at Acts 12. Um, and we're just going to dive right in here. Uh, but before that, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, you are good, gracious, and kind to us, uh, patient, uh, compassionate. Your mercies are new each morning, and uh, we thank you for all of that this morning, uh, for bringing us here, for uh, able bodies and working snowblowers to handle the week, uh, for four-wheel drive and snow tires and uh, school and work from home options. Uh, we're, we're grateful to be here. Um, we ask that you would uh, be with us now. We need you as we open your word and as we consider uh, what you'd have for us. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Uh, and pray that you'd be with us now. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Acts 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. They were met there oh, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. 
And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, oops. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. All right, so we're going to walk back through this and just kind of pull out some different things. There's a lot of names, a lot of uh, places and those kind of things. So we're going to walk through and just kind of uh, fill in some details that uh, uh, give this passage a little more life. Uh, so first, uh, about that time, uh, what time was that? Not a time of day, but kind of a time and a sequence of events. Uh, so if you look at Acts 12 in the larger book of Acts, it's actually a hinge point um, for all the action. Um, and uh, so from the beginning of Acts, we see Jesus ascending, we see the early church, we see uh, these great sermons to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Um, the primary setting of all of those first 11 chapters and into 12 is in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. And it's primarily with Jewish people. Um, and it's very Jewish-centered, very Jerusalem-centered. So starting in chapter six, that starts to shift a little bit. We start to see a shift in things. Uh, so there's Hellenists, in that chapter, they're Greek-speaking Jews, and in the distribution of things, of, of food and other things, they're being left out, and they're kind of second or afterthoughts to, to uh, God's people. And so the apostles appoint uh, actually Greek-speaking men to make sure that things are ordered differently. Um, and you get this little bit of a, a taste of God's plans for the gospel spreading to all nations, to all people. Um, so the apostles do this reorg of the church to make sure that these Hellenists are included and that they're represented and they're respected in the church. Uh, in chapter eight, Philip proclaims Jesus in Samaria, which is kind of the next door neighbors. They're despised, they're half Jewish, but uh, in terms of their spiritual and religious life, they're really kind of, they're yucky. They're, they're other, they're different. Um, but you see the gospel starting to reach out beyond Jerusalem, beyond the Jewishness. Uh, in that same chapter eight, Philip teaches the uh, Ethiopian eunuch as he makes his way out of Jerusalem and Judea. So you start to see this kind of missionary, these little uh, 
light, bursts of light, kind of the gospel poking out in different places outside of Jerusalem, outside of uh, Jewish quarters. Uh, in chapter 10, Peter has his vision and uh, goes to Cornelius. Uh, he's now called to preach the gospel even to the Gentiles, but he leaves from Jerusalem. That's where the action is centered. Um, and then finally, uh, chapter 11 sees a continuation of this expansion. Jewish believers have scattered because of persecution. You'll remember uh, Stephen is, is martyred. Uh, and as a result, people, these Jewish believers start kind of dispersing. They head out uh, because of the danger and the, the turmoil of following Jesus in Jerusalem and in, in uh, Judea. And so they're heading out and they're going to other places. And it says in the passage, they shared the gospel only with Jews as they go. So they're actually geographically in different places outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, but their concern is still Jewish. Uh, but then it mentions an exception, except in Antioch. In Antioch, Greek-speaking Gentiles hear the gospel and there's this movement of God amongst the uh, Gentiles there and, and all sorts of people come to know him who are not Jewish. They're not uh, even in Jerusalem or in Judea. Uh, and so the good news goes out uh, and Paul and Barnabas end up spending a year there uh, teaching, encouraging this suddenly multi-ethnic congregation. And so you see this far into Acts, we're kind of starting to see the gospel kind of start to, to move out. It's kind of like a uh, flywheel where, you know, you have to put a lot of energy into flywheel to get it moving. And so chapter six, you have these Greek speaking Jews and God's kind of priming the thing here, starting to get it spinning. This is the gospel's going to go out. And then you see, uh, see, um, Philip with Samaria and, and the gospel starting to go out and you see this momentum building. And now as we get to chapter 12, it's really the culmination of all this where the gospel message and the people of God are all of a sudden going to be heading out all over. And so that's the, uh, the beginning of, of chapter 12 here. It, it's a shift in the makeup of the early church. The concerns are no longer primarily Jerusalem and Jewishness, but it's this gospel for the whole world. It's a major shift. Uh, and from chapter 12 on, the action of the book actually is no longer centered in Jerusalem or primarily amongst Jewish people. Um, this, this chapter and this, the, what happens here is really kind of the impetus for the gospel going to the nations. Um, so that's the at this time. That, that's where we find ourselves in this passage. So quick note on Herod. Uh, so the Herod in focus today, uh, he is violently opposed to believers. Uh, he has James' head cut off and he's really carrying out a family le legacy. Uh, for those of you that are expecting, we've got a number of uh, families here expecting, the name Herod should not be on your list. Uh, there's, a, there's a legacy attached to that name. So the Herod today that's violent, cuts off James' head, seizes Peter, is the grandson of the Herod who, when Jesus was born, ordered the execution of all the babies in Bethlehem. So grandfather, grandson. We have another Herod, uh, if you remember the Passion Week and, and Christ's crucifixion. That's a different Herod uh, that uh, takes part in Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Um, so this Herod, 
is a mixed bag of motives. He probably was raised in Rome or spent, ex- spent extensive time in Rome as a ruler. He had all this kind of privilege and relationships and other stuff because of that. Um, uh, but he also kind of has some Jewish aspirations as well. So he's a kind of a, a ruler, but he's also Jewish. Uh, but you see in the passage, his motivations, there's a little bit of... Uh, religious or spiritual thing. He's observing the Passover and and he doesn't want to kill Peter in the midst of that. That'd be uh, sacrilegious and and defile the holiday and that kind of thing. Uh, But primarily his motivations are political. People like him when he does, when he kills James, he's earning political favor and and social status. And so, um, He's kind of an a, a, a interesting character here because we get to see his pride up close and person, personal. Um, the James in this passage uh, is brother to John, not John the Baptist, but uh, John and James, the sons of thunder. If you remember through the gospels, uh, they're kind of bold and brash. Uh, they're the ones that go to Jesus and, and say, hey, can we sit at your right hand when you come into your kingdom? Um, James is in the inner circle uh, he is one of the three, along with John and Peter, that sees uh, Christ uh, at the transfiguration. Uh, he's one of the three that's often kind of pulled away uh, with Jesus in a more close, more intimate way. Their friendship, their relationship was deep. Uh, he's kind of, you know, the cream of the crop in terms of those original tw- disciples, Peter, James, and John. Um, And it's interesting in that famous passage where they're asking, can we sit at your right hand? Uh, Jesus says, you don't really know what you're asking, but you will share in my suffering. So we actually see that uh, prophecy of Jesus coming to be in this passage. Uh, And it's surprising, James cut with the sword and that's it. Uh, you'd think of someone of his note, of his importance to the early church, there'd be more. I uh, look at Stephen's death just chapters before, and, and it's a very detailed explanation of what's happening and how it happens. And uh, James, one of these key figures, he's done and gone, and, and that's it. Um, and so James dead. Peter is the natural next target for Herod. Uh, Peter was widely known as a key leader with believers. And in, in many ways, if you look at the story of Acts, he probably was seen as kind of the figurehead or the face of that early Jerusalem church. He's the one delivering speeches and uh, he's walking around and people are getting healed and all sorts of crazy stuff. Peter is kind of uh, right in the front of it. And, and so he's a natural next target. Um, and uh, so... You see that, and, and, and what's going on here? This church is kind of starting, it's blooming, and all of a sudden these important people are, are facing these hard things. Um, you can imagine how the church would have responded, right? Uh, James is taken, imprisoned, and killed. And now Peter, uh, these are two of the three closest to Jesus. And uh, the church would have been shaken. They were two of the best, uh, Peter and James. They spent years with Jesus. Uh, they were empowered by the Spirit for mighty words and deeds. Um, and uh, the church responds in a way that uh, the only way that any of us can when we're faced with tragedy and impossible odds. They pray earnestly. Um, I love that, that phrase, uh, earnest prayer. It, it can also be translated fervent prayer, or unceasing prayer. You get the idea of, 
on the floor, tears on the cheeks, crying out to the Lord, laying your soul bare. God, do you see us? Do you hear us? God, please deliver Peter. God, please uh, bring repentance to Herod's heart. God, please work a miracle. A fervent, unceasing prayer. Um, Peter, in the meantime, uh, impending death, didn't find sleep too hard to come by. <laughs> he's in jail, he's chained, he's got two men standing guard immediately next to them, two more outside the door of the, the jail cell, and he's asleep, so much so uh, that when an angel comes and starts giving orders, and he's actually standing up and dressing himself, like needs to be told everything, you know, the angel's like, we're getting out of here, you need your shoes, yeah, you, you, you might want to put some clothes on. Like, let's get moving here. Peter's uh, in deep enough sleep, apparently. Uh, he doesn't know what's happening. Um, he doesn't recognize what God is doing through the angel until after the angel disappears. I mean, I can imagine, I'm not a, 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 a sleepwalker, but a little bit of that kind of experience where he, he lays down, he's got these stinky guys sleeping on a dirt floor, he's in chains, and the next things he knows, he's standing in the middle of a street, like, how, how, how did I get here? Uh, he, so he's in deep sleep. Um, and as he gets out, he comes to his right mind. He goes to where he knows others will be. Immediately, Peter knows, I need to find the others. And so he goes, uh, and, and the church uh, is now for the second time seen in prayer. Earnest prayer while he's in jail. And then he goes and, and they're gathered and they're praying. Uh, the scene with Rhoda uh, really is a, a funny one. Um, it would be funnier given different circumstances, but he shows up at the door. They're praying. Uh, we can assume for him. Uh, they're praying for his deliverance. He shows up and she's so excited. She just runs off without even letting him in. Like, yeah, guys, he's here. No, what, where is he? You didn't, he's not here. You, like you would have brought him. It's, it, no, uh, it, it really would be a, a lot funnier uh, if it wasn't in, in such a hard, uh, sick situation. Um, but Peter, you can see all of a sudden this rush of people. I imagine this rush of people coming because Peter's still there. Hey, you guys, like, come on, Bueller. You know, like someone, someone respond here. Uh, and you see this crowd rushing and he silences them. Uh, he passes along his story and then Peter is quickly on his way. Uh, it's kind of interesting. They, they prayed for the deliverance. Peter is here. It's this incredible miracle. Uh, and he doesn't stick around. He passes his news on and he kind of just disappears. He goes to another place. And as you read the rest of Acts, you actually see Peter kind of just shows up a couple other places. He's been the central figure. And all of a sudden, chapter 12, he's rescued in this miraculous way. He shares the news and then he goes to another place. It's really an interesting thing. And it's one of God's workings of, of uh, moving his people around. Um, and then finally in this passage, we see uh, Herod's pride and his foolishness run away, leading to judgment by God. Uh, in the midst of James' death, Peter's arrest, the persecution of Christians, um, we have Herod. And in the beginning of the chapter, he is 
uh, judge, jury, and executioner. He is playing God, deciding when people should live and die and how they should live and die. Uh, we see him in his pride, uh, puffed up and, and uh, receiving glory that he shouldn't have. And um, it's, uh, it's purposeful that we see Herod's death. Like this section could have been skipped over. You know, it doesn't actually affect the church directly. And, and you know, it's not like tied into the apostles doing a whole bunch of other stuff. It's, but it's important that we see God's judgment on Herod, on this man who was in power, who was ruling, who was uh, persecuting believers and, and ultimately brought to account by God. Um, and the chapter, in, in spite of this death, this persecution, this hardship, uh, ends on an incredibly powerful note. Uh, and uh, you see, the word of God increased and multiplied. So the heat's on, the Jews are chasing the Christians, the people in power are chasing Christians. It's not just kind of make their lives uncomfortable, but end their lives kind of persecution here. And the word grew and multiplied. It's just crazy to me, the ways of God. And then we see Paul and Barnabas. This verse here really is the final note of this very Jerusalem, Jewish-centered early church. So now all of a sudden, Antioch and all these other places, uh, Paul, Saul, and Barnabas leave Jerusalem, and, and they actually carry the story forward uh, to the ends of the earth. Um, So a couple quick, well, one quick observation uh, from the passage before I move on to the part of the story that really gripped me um, and caused me so much struggle this week. So God's sovereignty and power is a primary uh, mover behind the story is very evident. And so we see that with Peter's miraculous rescue, right? Like no one was getting Peter out of there, but God. No one was going to make those chains fall off. No one was going to keep those guards asleep. No one was going to open that gate and lead him out but God. And, and Peter's rescue really is, is a, a kind of a miniature uh, telling of the gospel. Without hope but God. God shows up and uh, God's sovereign in all of that. Um, but think of the, some of these other things that we see here. God uses persecution in this passage and the previous chapters to drive believers to new places where they will meet new neighbors with whom they can share the good news. Jesus leaves with the great commission of making disciples of all nations. And through the first several chapters of Acts, they're kind of slow getting that going. And so this persecution actually in its tragedy and in its sadness is used by God to fulfill his desire to reach all peoples. Um, we see God's sovereignty uh, with Herod. He's acting as God, taking life, deciding who should live and die. Uh, and he's thwarted by God. First with Peter's rescue, Herod has him in his hands, in his grips, and God rescues him, thwarting his plans. Then we see Herod's own death at God's command. Um, even the powerful must answer to God. Uh, God is over the rulers of this world. And then uh, finally, a, a subtle thing, but Peter's disappearance from the scene kind of at the end of this chapter uh, 
It marks the movement of the spirit to bring the gospel to Gentiles through Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Really, the shift in the narrative, the focus of the gospel message all of a sudden is to the nations. Clearly, over and over and over, we see this as the book goes on. Um, And uh, so God's wisdom in all of this, his sovereignty, it's inscrutable. His purposes are beyond our comprehension. I don't think those gathered in Mary's house were thinking about, great, now the gospel is going to go to the world as they're mourning James's death. Uh, they're not thinking about that. As Peter's in prison, they're terrified over what it means for them, what it means for this new church. Uh, they don't see those purposes of God. Um, but his, God's power over life and death seen in James' death and Peter's rescue and Herod's death are all evident and they show something, show us something about God uh, in each case. So James' death reminds us we're not exempt from hardship or suffering or death. You know, you kind of get the list of who are the, the top tier guys you want around to help get this church going. James is on that list and he's one of the first to die. God's time, his time was done. Uh, Peter's rescue reminds us that God can and does work miracles. We can be in those jail cells, trapped and without hope, and God can work miracles. Then Herod's death shows us that God will not be mocked and that there's no one who's above the judgment of God. God's sovereignty in this passage is important for us to consider because it ties in uh, with our series on prayer. Uh, and with the thing I really struggled with this week. God's power is on full display in this passage, and we see his people fervently in prayer, but we also see pain and sorrow and loss. Uh, And so it brings us to to what I I struggled with this week, making sense of this passage on prayer. Uh, What I really wrestled with this week was the why lurking behind the passage. Uh, And maybe you don't see it, maybe it's not immediately evident, but why was Peter rescued, but not James? God could have done it. I have to imagine the church was praying for James in the same way they prayed for Peter. Where was God when the sword was being lifted over James? How could God let something so devastating happen to the church in its infancy? Why did God choose Peter and not James? Um, Why didn't those prayers get answered the way they hoped? Um, And the reason I got hung up on those kind of questions was because of how they mirrored my own prayer life. Uh, These kinds of questions strike at the hardest things about following a good and sovereign God in a broken and grieving world. So you've got, I've got our own version of these same questions. It's a near universal impulse for us to ask these kind of questions in response to loss or suffering or hardship, right? Uh, You can try them on for yourself here. Uh, See if you can recall any moments like this in your prayer life. Talking to God, where were you when? Or how could you? Why did you? Why won't you? Perhaps you've not had those moments. I know I have them. Uh, regularly. I've got uh, ongoing prayers that sound a lot like this. You know, why Peter, not James? Uh, So I found that this week, I found myself wondering who in our passage 
would have had those kind of questions after the death of James. Uh, maybe even before Peter is rescued, they're asking, why God? Where were you? And then after Peter shows up, why Peter, not James? I can imagine Peter with some survivor's guilt. God, why me, not James? Why not both of us? Or, you know, struggling with that. Um, I can imagine a lot of them having those kind of prayers. Uh, in my own life, how do I keep motivation for prayer, not knowing if I'm praying for a James situation or a Peter situation? Uh, unfortunately, there's no easy answers to this. God doesn't often give us the insight, the wisdom, or clarity in our reflections that give us satisfying answers. Uh, I lost a friend as a 19-year-old who fell on a construction site. Um, he didn't fall from a particularly great height. He was about eight feet up, and he was just cleaning up from the day and, and fell, uh, and he, he landed the wrong way. Uh, I've fallen from greater heights both before and after his death. Uh, I fell off my roof and I walked away laughing. Why? You know, why is it that he, at the age of 19, with his life in front of him, passed away and, uh, and I've walked away from so many others? Uh, I know and am known by the living God whose love for me is unfathomable. And still, I've had a lifelong struggle with anxiety. Why can't God take that away? He's done it for others. Uh, these are some of the hardest questions that a believer can wrestle with. Uh, I can imagine Peter asking him of himself uh, and others in that early church. Um, this is kind of the deep waters of life with God. Uh, and, and there's a number of places, but there's one place in scripture in particular that kept coming to mind this week. Uh, it really hits this issue square on the head and uh, it doesn't flinch uh, about how unsatisfactory some people might find the answer. Uh, and, and you probably know where I'm going, maybe. Uh, the book of Job. In the book of Job, we see suffering. We see a man facing loss and asking questions like, God, why? Why? the anger, the frustration, the disappointment that Job has. And he's got all these kind of questions just tormenting his soul. And he brings them before God. So Job, it's, it's a guidebook on God's sovereignty over Job's life, over our lives. Uh, but it's also uh, a guidebook on, on uh, suffering. Uh, for the anguished praying soul, it also offers some perspective which, help, which helps us reconsider our need for clear answers to our why questions. Um, in the midst of his suffering, Job lays out his grievances before God. Uh, and from a human perspective, he lays out a pretty strong case for his anger and for his disapproval of what God has allowed to happen. Uh, and then God opens his mouth. God speaks and uh, uh, the, the Job changes his tune pretty significantly in uh, chapter 38. There's four chapters of Job where God speaks uh, and clarifies who he is in his sovereignty, who he is in his wisdom, who he is in his power. Um, and with patient but forth, forceful truths, God reveals to Job a perspective in life and death that uh, undercuts all of his whining, his muttering, his resentment, and his anger. Um, 
God in those chapters is giving Job a sampler platter uh, of his wisdom. Do you know how to set the boundaries for the oceans? Did you raise the mountains from the sea floors? Did you set the times and the seasons? Do you make sure the animals, all these different animals rise and fall and get what they need? Do you know the wisdom and the power? Do you see the storehouses of snow and rain that I have stored up? All this wisdom, all this power, God is revealing more and more and more of this to Job. Uh, And at the end of it, Job's reply reveals his newfound perspective. Uh, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job's got a lot of hard questions for God. And God can handle those hard questions. When we have those hard questions, the why questions, how could you questions, God can handle those. But we see here in Job is a perspective of God's purpose that is bigger than our understanding. Um, So Job, that's kind of a depressing passage. It's not often the answer we want to hear when we're in a hard place. Um, And when we have hard questions around suffering or unanswered prayers. Uh, Romans 8.28 offers a little bit brighter take on the same issue. Uh, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, In both the Job passage and in uh, this passage, we see this word purpose, God's purpose. When you look at Peter and James, we have to keep this in mind, God's purpose. The why is not something we're gonna understand. Why James, why not Peter? Uh, We're not gonna know that. And right here, this really is the crux of faith. Without seeing or knowing everything, can we acknowledge that God has purpose in everything and that he is good? Can we trust in a God who gives Job a hard answer? God doesn't give a consoling answer to Job, an I'm sorry answer. He gives a here's who I am as God answer. Um, can we live each day knowing that Romans 8:28 is true regardless of what life brings us? Um, this week, uh, I found tremendous encouragement from the church in Acts 12. So they're right in the middle of this hard stuff. Death, persecution, imprisonment, people being scattered, lives being uprooted, They're in the middle of that. Their fears have been realized. Their hopes have been dashed. Their dreams for their children being raised in the same town where they grew up disappear. Uh, They've seen death and they've been left to wrestle with the hard questions of faith. And twice in this passage, we see them living out the only response that offers any hope of peace, 
or comfort or deliverance. They engage in fervent prayer. They have an Acts 28 faith that compels them to continue going to God, beseeching him for rescue, for mercy, for wisdom, and so much more. They are all in on prayer, regardless of what Herod throws at them. Uh, My children deserve a better legacy than my driver's license pictures at my funeral. Uh, I've had this conviction this week. What if I was all in on prayer? What if that's one of the things that I did wholeheartedly? What would that look like? What would that mean in my life? What would that result in in the lives of my children, of my loved ones, of my community, of my neighbors? Um, That church in the midst of hard things was all in on prayer. They didn't let the hard questions, the whys, those inner struggles keep them from going to God. Uh, And so I was so encouraged by this church here in Acts 12. And as I thought about that church in Acts 12, praying fervently, and as I reflected in our sermon series, uh, I came up with a list of reasons why we pray, even when we don't get answers to our hardest questions. Uh, Even if we don't know if we're praying for Peter or for James, uh, but we pray nonetheless. And so these were just things I came up with in reflection. There's probably a million others you could add to this list, but uh, I, I needed this encouragement today because uh, I've had days, weeks, months, seasons of life where those why questions um, can kind of overwhelm my soul and not having the answers can overwhelm myself. And it keeps me from going to God. And so I needed to be reminded of all these things we've seen over the last weeks Uh, why we pray to a sovereign and good God. Uh, So uh, here's my list. To be obedient, we're commanded to pray. To imitate Christ, to do what Jesus did. To see God's promises fulfilled in our lives. Uh, To form our souls in the likeness of God. To orient our hearts and minds to truth. To let go of burdens. To commune with God to acknowledge our limitations, to praise our God who is worthy of all praise, to live the gospel by confessing our sin and receiving our savior, to ask for miracles, for deliverances, for healing, and so much more, to invite the Holy Spirit's present and comfort, to bless and encourage others, to get wisdom and discernment, to grow and strengthen our faith, to practice the presence of God in our lives, to hear from God, to be reassured of God's love, to experience the joy of God's presence, to practice trust. These and so many more are motivations to pray. And I can imagine that church in Acts 12, having those hard questions and still going to God because they know he's good and they know he's sovereign. Uh, Acts 12 doesn't offer a a clear guide to prayer. It doesn't have a template for what we should be praying, Uh, but it does show us some of the grittiest, most determined prayer warriors uh, that we can imitate in our own lives. They're in it. They're in the thick of the hard stuff and they're committed to prayer. They're praying earnestly and without ceasing in the face of great loss and pain because they trust that God in his sovereignty and love will hear our prayers and respond. 
So I want to go back to our question of the day. Uh, and it really came from some personal conviction this week. I kind of already mentioned uh, some conviction regarding my prayer life. Uh, I let my hard questions, my frustrations, my angers keep me from going to God as if he can't handle the hard questions, if he, as if he can't handle the big stuff in my life, as if he doesn't know what my pain is. Um, and so I let that keep me from going to God in prayer. Rather than taking those things to God, I let them ferment in my soul. I kind of start bubbling. I start brooding, uh, kind of sulking sometimes, but they, there's bitterness, there's resentment, there's anger, there's this distrust all this other stuff that starts to bubble up that keeps me from going to God in prayer. Uh, and so I asked myself, uh, looking at this, what would it look like if prayer was the activity that I threw myself into wholeheartedly? Um, what might happen if I was to become a person committed to earnest prayer? Not just a kind of quiet time, here's, uh, I'm going to do my devotional, I'm going to say a prayer, I'm going to pray at meals, but uh, someone who's committed to prayer. Uh, and I don't have good answers. I, I don't really know what that looked like, but that's the, the conviction I, I had this week. What would it look like? What might happen uh, if we as a church were to engage in prayer this way? Fervent, continuous prayers. Um, and I don't have answers to those. But as I look at this Acts 12 passage, I, I see the power of God. I see his purpose and I see his sovereignty and I see his goodness. I see his faithfulness in James' death and in Peter's miraculous delivery. Uh, and all those things should compel us to continue to go to God in prayer, more and more to go to God in prayer. Um, and so in asking these questions, uh, about prayer, what would it look like if I was that kind of person? Uh, I don't have answers, but I felt the Holy Spirit prompting me in various ways uh, to remember what a joy and a privilege it is to be able to bring things to God, to, to through the Son who died on our behalf and is seated at the right hand of God, interceding on my, our behalf. Like, we get to pray to that God. We get to step into the throne room and be in the presence of God through the blood of Christ. And we get to have fellowship and communion with him. Uh, and the joy and privilege of prayer uh, is something that too easily gets forgotten. Um, and so as we close today, I've got a few questions for us to consider. Uh, and here we go. What hard questions do you have for the Lord? What are your, your, where are you? Where were you when? Or why didn't you? Or why haven't you? Or how could you? Uh, what are those questions you have for the Lord? And uh, what would it look like to trust God with the weight of those questions? He's big enough to handle that. What would it look like to bring those things to him? Say, Lord, I don't know what to do with this. Show me that you're good and that you're with me. How can you remind yourself of God's sovereignty and goodness in hard circumstances? And finally, what reminders do you need to set on your phone, in your calendar, 
What accountability do you need to seek? Who can join you on this journey? Uh, And what personal growth do you need to pursue to move towards becoming a person of earnest prayer? I know for this week, I've been kind of thinking through what are some of the resources? Like I I never really had, I went to seminary, didn't have a class on prayer. Uh, I went to a Christian college, never was taught to pray. Uh, I need to, like, that's shocking, and maybe it's not, but, like, I need to learn to pray. That's a personal growth thing for me. What resources, what books, what sermons, what teaching do I need to to consider? Um, and, uh, yeah, so so that, that's, <laughs> that's where I've been at. It's just, what would it look like? Uh, I don't know. What would it look like? Would I be an Acts 12 kind of prayer in the midst of those same circumstances? I don't know, but I want to be. And I can trust that God could help me to be that kind of person. Um, And uh, we're going to close now. We're going to sing some songs, but uh, we're going to do communion as we do that. And so uh, if you're not familiar, we uh, practice open communion. We've got things out both doors here. Uh, And uh, we don't ask that you be a member of our church or any church, but we would ask that you would uh, be a follower of Christ. And so a worship band can come up here. Uh, I'm going to pray and uh, yeah, pray that we would be prayers, knowing that God will answer prayers. He sees us, he hears us, and he is with us. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, you love us. And uh, you love for us to spend time with you in prayer. Uh, You answer prayers. You hear our prayers. You see our suffering. uh, And you want to be with us in that. Father, a lot of times we want answers. We want to know your purpose. Why? How could you? Uh, Sometimes you give those answers, Lord, but so often you do not. I pray that uh, in that we would not become restless and disappointed and angry, uh, but that we would grow in faith and trust that uh, you are sovereign and good in all things. Uh, I pray that you would make us a people of prayer. As we finish this series on prayers, we've looked at all these different prayers in scripture, Father. I pray that uh, you'd work in our hearts and minds to uh, become people of prayer that uh, lift one another up before you, that lift our world up to you, that uh, seek you earnestly, wholeheartedly people uh, of people of faith that uh, want to see you at work in our lives. And uh, we know that you can do that. We trust that you can do that. We pray that you would do that in us. And uh, thank you for this morning. I ask that you'd uh, continue to be with us as we worship. Amen.